So we are in a series of messages called The Jesus I Never Knew. And we're trying to just kind of back away from what we know about Jesus as those who read his story and his teachings and his interactions with the perspective of knowing how the story ends. And we're trying to enter into uh, the experience of Jesus as it was uh, encountered, as he was encountered by those who did not know how it would end. Those who were alive while he was alive. How did they process what he said? Not really knowing uh, where it was all going and how it would end and what it would all mean. And so realizing that it's impossible for us to fully do that. I mean, we, we do know how the story ends. We want to take this, this glimpse into uh, the life and the teachings and the relationships of Jesus and, and just try for a moment to look at these interactions from the vantage point of those who were there, who, who couldn't see where it was all going necessarily. And today, I want us to touch on um, just how completely revolutionary this idea of grace was that Jesus was trying to convey. Just a completely foreign concept to his listeners, one they could not possibly have understood. And uh, frankly, as I've been doing this study, we're, we're using a book by a guy named Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew, and I've been reading through it as we go. And um, it, is, it is shocking how often Jesus repeated himself in, on this particular theme of grace and how just dull and blind and unperceiving his listeners were to this very radical idea. They just simply could not grasp it. So we're going to enter into uh, a story or a series of interactions that occur in the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And we're just going to follow along. I think there's about four different encounters um, that we see here and uh, maybe five different kind of relationships or teachings that Jesus relates to his hearers. Um, and we're just going to try to make, first, try to see this from the vantage point of people who did not know where he was going, and then try to make sense of it for ourselves and understand what this means to us. So I'm going to begin in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18, and uh, we're just going to read about this, some of this, one of these series of interactions where Jesus is laying out this grace revolution that he is presenting to his followers. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like 
other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. So, I woke up one Christmas morning. I was probably in about sixth grade, maybe fifth grade, fifth or sixth grade. 
and I remember coming into the living room. This is a great moment, right? This is just, this is what you've been waiting for all year. And there was the strangest looking collection of items in front of the fireplace. But I, I knew what they were, um, but had no idea, like, why they were there or what I was supposed to do with them, really. But it was, uh, it was a set of hockey sticks and goals for street hockey. I grew up in Houston, Texas. Now, Gordie Howe played for the Houston Arrows for many years, great hockey player, went to several games, saw him play. Um, but none of us played hockey. None of us really understood the rules. Um, you could stop the whole game by screaming, icing, and nobody knew what it meant. And they had to stop because they figured you did and they didn't, and, you know, that's just, yeah. So what we didn't know was that my mother had gotten together with several other moms around the neighborhood, and they had all purchased the same sets of street hockey equipment for their kids. Um, and so, I don't know if it was Christmas Day or the day after Christmas, and we all discover that we all have these weapons, right? And so we set up the goals in the street in the cul-de-sac outside of my house, and the you know kids start coming out. And normally, this would be a football game. I had this, this front yard that was totally flat. You have these in Houston. You don't have those here, but we had one. This yard, totally flat. No trees in the middle of the yard. Trees on the ends or corners, but no trees in the middle of the yard. Great football yard, and everybody would gather in our yard for, for football. And so that's what one might have expected, except for this Christmas, we had these strange implements in our hands and no real concept of how to play. And basically, I'll just get to the point. The, what happened, the first kid who showed any sign of fear got wailed on just mercilessly, all right? You know, so the first kid to do this, it was just like, oh, baby, and in for the kill goes one guy and then the next guy, and sticks are flying, and there's blood, there's screaming, and, and really, there was, there was one kid that got totally abused in this incident. And it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was, pretty bad. Uh, if you were that kid, it was, it was just devastating. And, and we didn't like put him in the hospital or anything, but um, there was this, so, so then, you know, there's, there's all this ruckus, there's this one kid just cowering, and, um, and then, I don't know if it was my mom or some other mom comes out, and uh, isn't it interesting that the one person who doesn't have a weapon can get everybody to lay down their weapons, right? And uh, she comes out, and the game is over, and the next day, all of the sticks, all the, you can see the, the ends of the hockey sticks sticking out of the trash can, right? It's this, this era is over, 
it was hockey for a day in my neighborhood. And there were, you know, probably six trash cans down the streets with hockey sticks sticking out of them. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget that feeding frenzy on weakness that our culture is so prone to. Um, it came totally naturally to all of us. Um, and, and that kid is fine, by the way. He's, he's doing great. He's, you know, he's way ahead of the rest of us. Uh, what's that? He's not a hockey player. But what, somebody said something I didn't hear. But he's doing fine. Don't worry about him. Uh, that day was more of a revealing, uh, for me, of my own heart, my own willingness to jump in, my own um, tendency to attack weakness. And I'm just going to postulate, I'm going to guess that we all live this way, not beating other kids with hockey sticks, but we pounce on weakness. We don't tolerate um, this, this show, this display of weakness in our culture. Um, and we don't like to be around people who display this, this aspect, this, this brokenness, if you will. And Jesus has the completely opposite approach. He, he, sees, he sees weakness and he moves toward it in gentleness. He moves toward it in, in wisdom and in, and in uh, more than compassion. He moves toward it deliberately, redemptively. And you see this in some of these interactions that, that Jesus has in this chapter. And I just want to talk about, you know, this was a this was a difficult chapter for me. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I, I consider myself a grace guy, right? Which applies in every aspect of my life until it's like marriage at home, you know, yeah. Then, then it's all bets are off, right? Um, but <laughs> I got an amen. Um, but... I, so, how do I say this? I pride myself on being a grace guy? I think that's fair to say, right? It sounds bizarre, like I love, Mike and I love to tell people how humble we are. It sounds strange, but it's really true. Um, but I try not to let a Sunday go by where I'm doing what I'm doing now without getting down to the grace of God. Because this, this is the stuff that, that makes us as Christians, this whole idea of grace. And it is so completely contrary to the way we typically live, the way we tend to relate to others. And so this is, it's it's difficult for me to talk about or, or get 
myself into a posture where grace is a radical idea. Because I, I talk about it all the time, if that makes sense. It's kind of my wheelhouse. It's where I feel comfortable. It's where I sit. Um, so I'm going to say, I'm going to make a statement that you will almost certainly agree with, but that you should realize we don't agree with it natively. So here's that statement, that part of what Jesus is saying in these interactions is that we are to choose grace over works. We're to choose grace over works. Now we know that, right? This is a a cognitive part of Christianity. We're saved by grace, not by works, Ephesians chapter 2. We know we're supposed to say this. We know this is part of who we are as Christians. Um, The problem is getting at how poorly we manifest this in our own hearts and in our own lives. We function by works. We get paid for what we do. Uh, We tend not to get paid for things we don't do. Um, This is how life works. Um, We get good things from our parents when we work hard and make A's. We get maybe bad things from our parents when we don't work hard and we get bad grades. Um, You get the idea, right? All of life is geared towards this process of working for what we get. Um, Jesus sets up this parable that turns that whole paradigm on its head. Um, Philip Yancey, in this chapter of his book, quotes a, a critic of Christianity who was writing about this very parable, who said, this parable is ridiculous. It's absurd. Um, it, it's not about the Pharisee, and it's not about the tax collector. It seems only to be about uh, how, how much God is willing to forgive. And Yancey puts in the sentence right after the quote just one word, exactly. <laughs> you, you nailed it. And, and so this idea that we are to choose grace over works, that Jesus reminds us that this whole faith thing, this whole relationship with God is not about how well we behave. It's not about that. Because if we make it about how well behaved we are and how well we can check off all the boxes, then we've completely missed the heart of God. And a few other important points that we'll get to. Um, You cannot deserve a gift. So I don't give gifts because the people to whom I am giving them are deserving of the gift. I give gifts to show that I love someone. And that love is not based upon how well they have performed for me. Um, God is the same way. He gives the gift of his grace not based upon how smart we are or how well-behaved we are or any other criteria. It's a gift. And Jesus reminds us of that 
in this parable about the, the contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. This Pharisee and even the rich run, young ruler that comes later in these interactions, they've all done well. They've all done everything correctly. They've behaved well. They've um, exhibited traits that most of us would respect. And God says, that's not how grace works. And Jesus reminds us painfully that pride undermines grace. We can't deserve what God gives us, and we can't think that we deserve what God has given us. We can't think that um, we are somehow better than someone else because God has chosen to give us his grace. Um, This whole grace thing is not about how well we behave. It is all about how fully God forgives. What is the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector? There's only one difference. One of them acknowledges he's he's sinful. That's the only difference. Now, can you earn God's grace by acknowledging that you're sinful? No. You can't earn it. But does God want to render us to a point where we realize our sinfulness? Yes. And so the story is not about how well the tax collector did at recognizing his sin. The story is about where God wants us to arrive in terms of our sin, to that point of acknowledging sin. Grace is about how fully God forgives. We are called to acknowledge our sin and trust him like a child. This was a really difficult thing to hear for a first century person. Children, this is hard for us to relate to. But for most of the history of, our, of, of humanity, uh, infant mortality is a big problem. And, and really unfortunate percentages of the babies who are born don't make it to the age of five. And many societies, there's, there's some cultures that won't even name a kid until they're five years old, right? Because the, this, they don't want to get too close, I guess. I don't know what going on there but every culture has figured out ways to kind of save putting down their bets until things are a little more certain and one of those cultural norms in first century Palestine was the complete dismissal of children particularly infants from the circles of meaningful interactions so Babies were to be kept away from where decisions were made. That's the basic premise. And so the disciples see people who 
whether they realize what infant mortality is or not, they all have this intuitive, I want mine to make it. And so they're bringing their babies to Jesus for obvious reasons, the same reason you would or I would. Um, they want God's blessing for their kid. And the disciples are, are basically, they're listening to Jesus teach, and these people are bringing their babies. They're interrupting this important dialogue amongst important people. And so the disciples say, take, take the kids away. We're trying to do something important here. Don't bother him. He's important, etc." And Jesus says, what are you talking about? This is the stuff. And he says, this is what I want from you. And everybody's like, you are whacked. Babies aren't important. Um, they can't contribute anything to our dialogue. They can't benefit us in any way. And Jesus is like, you got it. That's exactly right. And when we realize that the only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin, we're in the position of these children who have nothing that they can do to benefit the people who are blessing them. They have nothing to bring um, to the advantage of those who are taking care of them. And that is our posture as Christians, and Jesus reminds us of that. So, grace overworks great. I don't think you will argue with me on that point um, in words. Your life and my life will argue that point all day long. Um, but the next thing Jesus turns to is this call to choose him over security. Um, another grand human theme. One might even say, why do we work so hard to try and establish security for ourselves? Do not misunderstand me. God has no problem with you working hard in your vocation. That's not the point. Um, he does not want you striving after anything to try and give yourself ultimate security uh, in your own strength, in your own doing. That's what he's driving at. Um, so what is Jesus' message to this young wealthy ruler, the Bible calls him. Say it louder. Okay, get off your high horse. Uh, step off the stage, let God yeah, take his place. Um, Wouldn't you expect Jesus to be compassionate? Isn't that what we think of when we think of him? And I don't get that here. I don't see 
compassion towards this wealthy young man. He's pretty harsh, and he casts it in pretty stark terms. Like, you're not getting in to the kingdom of God, buddy. Chump. Uh, Okay. First message, stop depending on yourself. Stop depending on yourself. And we're speaking in spiritual terms. Uh, Self-reliance is fatal to your soul. Go back to the little child idea. The little child, uh, at least at first, um, doesn't even bother trying to rely on themselves. But then once you teach that little girl how to tie her shoe and you go to tie her shoe for her, what does she say? I can do it myself, right? Um, But stop depending on yourself. Self-reliance is fatal, and God's economy has a different engine. Success is not what drives God's economy. Look at the people that Jesus moved toward with compassion. Uh, Prostitutes, corrupt tax collectors, drunkards, lepers. Um, He included women in his following Like he actually taught to women, which in first century Palestine would have been considered by most people there a waste of time. And Jesus essentially says, you know, I'm not subject to the perceptions of my culture. I am going to do what's right. And I'm going to seek and move toward the people who are otherwise marginalized, forgotten, left out uh, infants could be put in that category or children of just about any age um, until they could work and do something productive. So Jesus says that God's economy has a different engine and it's, it's grace, it's not works. It's rest, it's not striving. It's peace, not war. Um, So, as we stop depending upon ourselves, we are to put all of our full weight on Christ. To know that not only is he able to save us, um, but he is able to care for us. And Jesus makes this point um, as he says, you know, hey. So he tells the rich young guy, you're, you're host. Forget about it. You're not going to get in. And everybody's sitting there is going, dude, if there's anybody here who's got it together, it was that guy. We're, we're hosed. We're, we're not going to make it. Um, this is... This is game over. How if if the guy that has his life together can't get into the kingdom of God, what are we going to do? Um, we're losers, and we know it. 
And Jesus says, exactly. That's what I'm looking for. And so they actually articulate, um, uh, Jesus, if he can't get in, who can? He says, hey, I can do anything. All things are possible with God. Um, he is able to save us. He's able to care for us. And then Jesus does this absolutely bizarre thing. He says, hey, guys, I got an idea. Let's go up to Jerusalem. It'll be great. We'll have dinner. Um, and then I'll get arrested. I'll get beaten to the point where you can't even recognize me. Then I'll be nailed to a cross. I will actually die. They'll shove me in a, in a tomb. And when the women come back to treat my body after the Sabbath, I'll be gone. What? And the whole, the whole little speech just goes... Because no one could envision a leader who gives himself up. No one could envision a, a victory that is established through death. This whole grace thing functions on a completely other plane than where we live. And Jesus is trying his best to deliver that message to one frustrated listener after another. And essentially he says, just cling to my cross. Which is sort of like saying, um, go relax in your electric chair. I mean, this, this is an instrument of death and torture and pain and humiliation and defeat. Um, the cross was Rome's way of saying, we win. And Jesus says, exactly. Go ahead. Give it your best shot. And to the very people who nailed him there what did he say father forgive them for they know not what they do um this guy is totally different he's he's relating on a totally different plane and he says it's about the cross everything you have just misunderstood about me trying to say to you about grace it's all going to be shown on the cross. So cling to that. Even if it looks like total failure, cling to the cross. The cross is a reversal of how the world works. And thank God. Because if, if this was about who can live this life the best, um, Nobody makes it out. And God says, this is about grace, not your striving. So 
this path, this journey will result in suffering. That's kind of where God is going as we as we strive in our sin and we reach the end of ourselves, there will be suffering in this life. There will be. Um, but there is something that transcends that suffering. And Jesus alludes to it when he says, I'll be, uh, I'll be gone on the third day. When they come to look for me, I won't be there. Um, so cling to the cross even if it looks like total failure even if you don't fully understand it think about I mean Jesus spells it out to his followers he pulls them aside and says listen carefully I'm, we're going to Jerusalem I'm going to suffer I'm going to be crucified and I will, ra- I will be raised on the third day. And they go, huh? I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense. Why are we here? Um, your faith, your relationship with God is not predicated on how well you get it, on how well you grasp who God is or what he has done. It's not predicated on you at all, thank God. Um, It's predicated upon what Christ has done. It's about how well Christ fulfilled God's plan. That's actually the first thing he said to his followers. He says, hey, this is going to get ugly, but keep in mind, I'm doing what every book of the Old Testament has been saying must be done I'm going to carry it out I'm going to fulfill this call to redeem to lay down a perfect sacrifice and to bring together all of these misfits all of these losers to redefine who they are how they live how they look at themselves and each other Um, God started a revolution and weirdly there's no way for us to how do I want to say this there's no way for us to to will ourselves into it. Jesus says it's not about human doing, human decision, human action. It's about divine will and divine action. It's about my love for you that will reach and redeem and restore and bring into the family of God forever. Will you pray with me? God, our loving Father, we marvel at your word that you were so deliberate in crushing the ways of our culture, of our works, of our self-righteousness 
to bring us to the end of ourselves and to the new beginning of life in your grace. Lord, we thank you that you care about the people on the margins, that you want us to be people who look for those people on the margins because we have been those people on the margins. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to lead us to live lives that are defined by grace. However impossible that seems, that throughout that entire journey we would cling to your cross. In your son's name we pray, amen.